0: Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards that, like, some greater purpose? Every man with bloated ego, we are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It is episode 263, and today I am your sole host. Eddie Averill. Malcolm and JT are not here for this one because the holidays, you know, it gets a little hectic and it's hard to squeeze in some recordings. And I was considering maybe unlocking uh, an old Patreon episode for the main feed, but I figured, you know what? You guys deserve better. And uh, with Ferrari in theaters, I'm going to look back at the house that Michael Mann built and rank the films along the way. You know, in the early 2010s, the quote-unquote vulgar tourism movement of online film criticism took aim at Mann and Tony Scott as its guiding lights, right? Scott was dubbed the action painter drawing lofty comparisons to the likes of Jackson Pollock, and Mann's digital expressionism ran the gamut of reference points that starts with Murnau and Lang and leaves its contemporaries in the dust while he's pushing the image to places it had never gone before, or taking it to the limit one more time. While the online movement would go on to champion more critically reviled and, frankly, less artistically rewarding filmmakers, like uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, for example, it became clear that Scott and Mann were not quote-unquote vulgar Vulgar at all. They were Hollywood auteurs in the truest classical sense. Leaving Scott aside here for a future episode, gonna stick with Man, his obsessions in both aesthetics and ideology are present from the jump and become more expanded with each effort. He also makes commercial genre films that are often reviewed on a level of entertainment value rather than high artistry. You know, to me, he's more like a Preminger than a Kubrick. He sees genre films as a way to smuggle ideas, both sociopolitical and audiovisual, and he's gained trust with studios to an extent to do what he's wanted uh, for a long stretch of his career. He works with the stars of the day, and, you know, you could say like Jimmy Stewart or Dana Andrews or his, uh, or like Al Pacino and Chris Hemsworth to him to continue the uh, Preminger. Uh, comps, and obviously uh, Dana Andrews, Chris Hemsworth. Not fair. But he uses these very big stars of the day to get his very specific mode of artistry across to the widest variety of people. And he's a guy who will say that Battleship Potemkin and Avatar are two of his four favorite movies and completely mean it. And that is why he's a filmmaker worthy of investigation beyond, you know, cool film, Twitter screenshots and whatnot. Um, so i'm gonna start with the asterisk uh the two TV movies at 13 and 12. Um, I'll start with la takedown because that is the less entertaining one unless you are a true heat head uh, this was a dry run for heat with an insane montage set to la woman and it has some like horrendous fumbling of classic lines from heat which is really funny like the guy who says the the action is the juice line it's like a you know for me action and juice you know they're kind of like uh, maybe Maybe the same thing maybe it's hilarious how bad the dialogue was on the first run and it's maybe the most rough draft core film i've ever seen but it's also such an interesting document of his career because this is clearly like he wanted to make heat for so long that when he had so much tv clout he was like all right i'll make a fucking tv movie but it's just going to be a rough draft for this epic film that i want to make that'll you know be three hours and in cinemascope not, you know, 90 minutes cut with commercials in four uh, three. We'll go on to the other one, the better TV movie, The Jericho Mile. Uh, Kino Larbert did a great blu-ray of this one That caught my attention I probably wouldn't have even watched it without that uh, Because, I, you know, TV movies, VHS quality You never love to see it But I uh, love the blu-ray here And Michael Mann just needs to do more sports movies And no, car racing is not a sport, okay uh, But this is an incredibly Mannian text About a criminal who puts all of his focus Into running long distance Themes of prison versus, like, self-corporeal punishment Uh, arrived for the first time in his filmography and the longing for independence even in prison hints towards the individualism that he would establish in Thief even more so. Um, Here is the first hot take, I guess, if you will, my number 11 and my bottom-ranked feature for him is The Last of the Mohicans. And it's a highly respectable film for me, but whereas Public Enemies and Ali, which also not his best, uh, they do a great job at looking back at history through a contemporary aesthetic lens, whereas Last of the Mohicans is more of the dressed-up, fancy period piece, and it leans into its own classicism a bit too much, especially with the score. People love that score, and you know, uh, to each his own. That's just not really my taste in movie scores. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, incredible, but Overall, this just feels like too big of a swing for the fences. You know, if all of his movies are about America and labor and capitalist alienation and individualism uh, and masculinity, this one should be like a biblical text, right? Since it's like around the foundation of America. So maybe the ambition was its greatest flaw. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like... I like man more undercutting classical beauty rather than letting it overwhelm like he does in this movie but that being said there is some classically beautiful stuff uh nonetheless number 10 I'm gonna go with the keep this is kind of a chalk pick for toward the bottom I know uh I I don't really think that it's like an a, a secret amazing movie and frankly that's the uh It's kind of the ultimate Rorschach test for has auteurism gone too far or even has aestheticism gone too far? Um, You know, man has some narrative shortcomings in his movies, but this one is just like actually incomplete and objectively flawed. Uh, According to anyone who has anything to do with it, it's like a totally incomplete movie, but man hits like an early stylistic peak here to keep it from being a total basement dweller. I actually enjoy watching it a lot more than The Last of the Mohicans on a pure like almost music video. Level, um, it's a movie about the Nazis going too far and unlocking some mystical voodoo shit. Where the style kind of goes in between like exploitation and like almost John Carpenter uh, style crazy color scope compositions and almost like early superhero movie, <laughs> like uh, the first Superman uh, movies from the '70s. And then there's also some stuff that's just so brown, like total you know banality of evil type shit. And it's just I don't know, it doesn't really come together, but there are some true moments in there, you know, like there's an incredible scene on a boat where the tangerine dream score just kicks into a higher plane. And I have no idea what the context of that scene is. And I've watched this movie twice, but that scene is a 10, Uh, It's one of man's earliest and best like pure vibe scenes, which he gets into later on with some of his best moments in the filmography. And sometimes these scenes are deeply indebted to like character psychology or plot mechanics, but sometimes it's just one of our best athletes doing his thing. Slightly edging out the keep is going to be public enemies. Now, If we're talking like mathematical film theater, sorry, if we're talking like mathematical film theory, this should be his best movie, right? Uh, Because it's, you know, the ultimate, uh, it's an American founding tale about crime. And he's doing such a crazy postmodern thing with the aesthetic approach. But it really just doesn't work to me on a very simple movie level. Like Christian Bale, Johnny Depp, Marion Cotillard is... That dramatic triangle is like the worst drama in any of these man movies, for sure. It's just a three pitch, three pitch strikeout looking. Um, maybe Johnny Depp swung But I ugh, who knows what he was swinging at And it's the production to It's the approach to production design And cinematography that make this such a Uniquely interesting aesthetic object Like you know the keep hard mode uh, He's using documentary style Like digital intimacy as well as Period recreation as design So this dynamic or this dialectic If you will seems to be what has informed Man's entire project leading up To that film and so he's investigating America's past through narratives of masculinity and greed and labor and power and independence. but he's also investigating cinema's tools of spectacle and faux realism through the tools of the future of cinema. And as I said, you know according to film theory that should be his best movie, right but it's it's number nine. number eight is Ali. this is the start of man's aesthetic transition toward the fully digital and it reminds me of why I probably could have gotten more out of this doing it chronologically instead of a countdown but hey, We're already halfway there almost. In 1999, he makes his final fully analog film with The Insider. Then in Ali... couple years later he's inserting digital sequences uh there's a fantastic jogging warm-up sequence that showcases the power of low light and long take possibilities on new digital cameras there's also fight scenes that have digital shots really quickly inserted into them which just give a jolt of energy and also showcase the flexibility and mobility of the new digital cameras It's also a classic man narrative about an American who's too good at what he does to fall into the trap of America. And he fights back physically and ideologically. Probably the perfect character cipher for man himself, other than man being a white guy, I guess. Um, The Insider. Admittedly, I haven't watched this one in a few years, but as a pure drama, it's fantastic. It might be like one of the better scripts that uh, he has directed. It stuck with me due to Al Pacino's hunger in that performance and uh, Russell Crowe's paranoia. And on the surface, it's kind of like man's most respectable film and is closest to like an Oscar drama. But it also has by far his most surrealistic and expressionist uh, scene, which starts in a hotel room and ends in a true like dark night of the soul moment visually represented. And it's a it's a major moral W for Michael Mann, even though I don't think anyone was like shocked that the tobacco industry was doing bad. Thief is number six. If you know anything about the writing on this film, it's probably a hack to bring up that Renoir quote at this point, right? But regardless, Jean Renoir once said, A director only makes one movie in his life. Then he breaks it into pieces and makes it again. As far as debut features go, I can't think of one that fits that bill so perfectly. Man's obsessions, ideological and aesthetic alike, come nearly full-formed. He's quoting labor surplus value theory shit uh, between busting open vaults and sending back creamer at a diner because it's turned to cottage cheese. The, romantic, uh, the romanticism of the diner scene and the intensity of the procedural moments are the mark of a master, and the neon of the car dealership is neo-noir defined, you know? Urban alienation of the 40s has gone from wartime chiaroscuro to the oversaturated blasts of color that look more like music videos than war footage, and the economic alienation has gone from scrambling to make ends meet after Hitler changed our perspective on humanity to self-consciously being a criminal because American values are rotten in a post-Vietnam War world. Um, number five and four, I'm gonna kind of do a tie here. Uh, it's it's a kind of a toss-up between Miami Vice and Collateral at five and four. Do you want the plot or do you want the vibe? Do you want the B movie? Do you like B movies or do you like TV shows? You know. Um, so back to the timeline I brought up regarding Ali. So he uses those digital shots there, right? And then he inverts the formula for Collateral. Collateral is a film shot fully at night on the Sony HDW F900. Yes, the Attack of the Clones camera, except for a surreal nightclub mass shooting on 35mm. Surreal might not be the best word here, uh, but the digital cinematography is affected in such a highly stylized way where the one analog set piece is closer to realism. But... We've bought into this digital low light image is the truth of the movie. So when 35 millimeter nightclub shootings take place with loud ass sound effects, uh, we're shocked out of the complacency that we were in before. This is what we knew is real for decades of movie going. But that is the fantasy. And, you know, maybe the story of collateral is closer to real life. And yeah, the marine layer doesn't really look that cool in L.A., but he's capturing the L.A. skies in a way that 35 never could. He goes on with Miami Vice to crank that up even higher. Uh, According to IMDb and other sources, there's like a couple 35 millimeter shots in the movie. I can't place them. They must be special effects shots or something like that. But because like the film leans so hard into that digital expressionism that it basically launched a whole new type of online cinephile. Um, it's just a total moment-to-moment movie. It doesn't reenact the vibe of the Miami Vice TV show. It's like a -a two-and-a-half-hour movie that feels like Michael Mann's, you know, what he would feel like a comforting cop show would be like, which just means romantic escapades and guys on boats and really convoluted drug busts and new technology. And, you know, it's, it's just incredible and uh, you know the, the fiend for mojitos scene has been quoted to death but i just love that as the definitive flight of fancy in any of these movies where it's just like all right we're gonna do a little romantic escapade here you know um both of these movies i will say are incredibly thick-skulled when it comes to music but i think that's part of man's charm you're not going to get the visual poet of American crime without the total bozo who likes post grunge and rap rock. You know, the, uh, the numb encore needle drop to start Miami vice is a jolt of electricity and a moment that became a period signifier before the film even hit DVD shelves. Uh, And the shadow of the sun needle drop over the coyote scene in collateral gets more funny. Every time I watch it, Uh, the former launches you right into 2006 and the latter makes you wish 2004 never even existed. And it's funny because some people, they might feel the inverse. They might think the audio slave song is really fun and the uh, numb encore is too corny. And I eh, kind of ride the line on both of them. Um, three, Manhunter. Now, we've talked about procedure a little bit, but this is easily the peak of man at his procedural core. It's kind of a film that defines off canon, right? Because I, it's not going to make too many people's like, Ten best movies of the 80s list right the real heads will have it up there but it's also essentially been replaced in the public consciousness by silence of the lambs um the quote everything with you is seeing isn't it your primary sensory intake that makes your dream live is seeing reflections mirrors images you've seen these films before haven't you so he's making the dream live he's heightening the aesthetic presentation to make a dark and deprived crime procedural nearly dreamlike the shot of peterson in that white interior building with that labyrinth of stairs and levels invokes kafka more than raymond chandler or james m kane uh the only neo-noir or this is only neo-noir on a surface level this is about the psychology of procedure with a very easy director as detective metaphor to boot Peterson and Brian Cox are what I assume man and Johnny Depp were like on the set of Public Enemies, uh, those two characters. There are just so many insane, overcranked images to take you out of the quote unquote realism if you're one of those viewers, or further indulge your surrealist imagist tendencies if you're one of those viewers. Think back to that antiseptic elector cell in this one. It's like not as funny or maybe even not as good as the Silence of the Lambs one. Uh, But the rhyming image of his white cell and that with the female murder victim in the white bed with those whited out eyes, you know, it's just unbelievably creepy and the unmotivated neon green coming into the closed blinds of an fbi conference room as if they're next door to the nuclear power plant from the simpsons uh the blood in that first crime scene it nearly looks black and of course we're in that white bedroom so it's like almost black and white and I just love that in contrast with how overcranked the colors are a lot. Uh, the shot of Peterson on the phone with the skyscraper behind him. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just one of the most handsomely shot films of the 1980s. And listen to this list of classic genre actors, right? So you got William Peterson, Tom Noonan, Joan Allen, Brian Cox, Dennis Farina, Stephen Lang, Michael Talbot. And then you have, like, two of my heroes of 90s comedy, Chris Elliott and Dan Butler, a.k.a. Bulldog from tragedy, okay? So, y- yeah. Number 2. Now this is the one that will come as a shocker to some, but if you've been paying attention, you realize I haven't listed this one yet, right? Black Hat. Black Hat defines the director's cut experience for a lot of people, but I think both versions are pretty much equally beautiful. Uh both versions are like about the future of crime, and one is just more closely conformed to what people expected from the plot structure of a movie like this. Uh, That second cut, though, however, it also has classic additional manisms, you know, (laughs) like the romance almost feels more unearned in the director's cut if you're critical, but it feels more poetic and elemental if you're generous, you know, all that's really said between those two is like, yeah, we're going to Hong Kong in the morning. All right, cool. We're like a couple now, basically. Uh, but the way that man is able to pull off those moments with the skyscrapers and uh, or the, the rooftops of the skyscrapers and just I don't know invoking city landscapes and using them in expressionistic ways to define characters and that moment where Hemsworth gets out of jail and oh my god he's on the airstrip and you have that classic man shot from behind his ear where he's just looking at the planes and he just realizes what he has as possibilities ahead of him and It's fucking beautiful. American crime becoming globalist crime is probably the most essential part of this movie, and it's easily his least American project, which is appropriate for the subject matter. You know, he started out with, like, tough guys in the Midwest, but now crime is more about a ragtag team of, like, jailed hackers, American feds, Chinese officials. (laughs) It's so weird. Like, super team-up movie, but that makes sense for, you know, uh, the future of globalization. Um, When this came out, Non-cinephile circles were quick to dub it like the Thor hacker movie. Oh, that's so dumb. What's he doing? You know? And maniacs probably find that more offensive than, you know, anything else in the world. (laughs) Um, so we've done an episode on Black Hat with Ryan Swin, who put together that approximation of the director's cut before the director's cut was officially released by Arrow recently. And, you know, that that's an episode where I really dive into the text of the movie. So I'll leave you there. Um, you can also just like watch the movie because I know some people still have it. Um, Holt McCallany, next level charismatic in this. I think he's one of the best character actors we have. Hemsworth, on the other hand, is a next level charisma vacuum, and that's fine because hackers aren't supposed to be your traditional tough guy. That's him. That's man moving on. You know, it's like the uh, the feds, the wannabe like tough guys from movies become feds now. And it's uh, pretty hilarious because you you think back and it's like, oh, yeah, he's been equating cops with criminals for the entirety of his filmography anyway. Uh, That's probably worth mentioning. (laughs) And in this one, they actually work better as a team to make that boundary line disappear uh, for the better narratively. Number one is Heat. Come on, Heat is Los Angeles. Heat is that cop and criminal line played as well as it's ever been in the history of cinema through the simplicity of a cut. You have two parallel movies that come together perfectly. You know, Eisenstein smiled, if you will. Uh, Heat is about family versus work. Heat is about logistics and maps and diners and hotels and moral bank robberies. And let's just start with the opening set piece because the seeds of the slick stuff is planted within a minute. And we already know that Wayne Grow is bad, even for a criminal and a guy that doesn't fall into the same code, uh, of cops or even criminals that man's do, uh, man's characters usually do. So you just know right away. And some people have actually even said that as a flaw of the movie, it's like, oh, these guys wouldn't work with Wayne grow. It's like, yeah, that's what screenwriting is, is you take like a, an unusual event and throw it into a usual world. And that is what sets off this crime epic is just getting the wrong guy one time. The reason heat endures is an all-time classic now uh though is not is because it's not like a tightly wound movie like collateral it's a movie with depending on the viewer 10 to 14 characters to care about um now the details on amy brenneman's Edie have long been criticized you know her being like a former design student who works at a bookstore and lives in a towering house in the hollywood hills and you know natalie portman's suicide attempt is oft dismissed uh but is there something more to that let's think back to a couple years ago right we had the irishman and what's upon a time in hollywood and the worst discourse that i can remember in recent film criticism the line counting anna paquin and Margot Robbie's uh, fantastic performances were criticized and the films were criticized for them not having an equal amount of lines of dialogue as the male stars of these movies making the movies somehow worse now you know the mental deficiencies you need to come to that conclusion aside It brings up something important about the perspective of the storytellers. You know, man has always been about masculinity and the struggles in the romantic scenes feel more deeply indebted to criticisms of American masculinity and manhood and family values and how that butts up against dreams of independence and greatness than his shortcomings of a female character writer. You know, so is this why Natalie Portman's suicide attempts? comes as such a shock and why some critics regard this this subplot as just an afterthought you know is this why diane verona as sorry diane venora as justine is such like a strained character existing basically just for al pacino's character to fuck in the beginning lose in the middle and maybe gain some trust back by the end you know it's the reason de niro pulls the ultimate bozo move in the history of cinema having an escape life all lined up with edie but going back to the hotel to kill Wayne grow. It's because man understands these men, man himself must be pulled somewhere between greatness uh, as the men of his films are usually focused on excellence as much as he is as a director and, you know, family and love and the real life. And it has to be a struggle or we wouldn't see the absolutely heart wrenching moment where Ashley Judd as, you know, Val Kilmer's wife motions for her uh, motions for him to stay away from the house. And is this man seeing light at the end of the tunnel as like a purely romantic gesture coming from a woman to offset uh, the inverted scenarios that brought them to this point? Or is this the peak of womanhood to him simply helping a man do his job? You know, there's a cynical reading and there's a generous reading, a dichotomy that runs through all of his filmography about those dynamics. If cops and criminals were portrayed as good and bad guys, there would be no struggle uh, morally and there would be no Michael Mann. And that's, that's just what it's all about, you know? I'm looking forward to Ferrari. Uh, he's one of our great filmmakers And I'll probably just fall right into the curse Of usual man releases Where it's like, uh, it's not that good And then in three years, I'm like, dude This is the best film of the decade Because that's the power that Black Hat had over me And that's the power that Miami Vice had Over a whole subculture So anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed this little mini-sode And uh, yeah, we will see you in a few days For our New Year's special on Phantom Thread See you then Next. I do this for a living!